You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. All right. Here you go. Uh, yeah. Jane? Yep. Let's go. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston and ProPublica's Daryland. Uh, I think there is a, a contractual obligation. Uh, you would probably know better than I would. Deliver uh, credit. But yes, I mean, uh, the fact so that we're, I could not get into the building with my fob indicates that I am now Daryland of ProPublica for the Weeds. And it's an exciting new world. Do you, do you have a job title there? Reporter. Cool. So, Darlin, reporter from ProPublica, so glad to have you here. It's uh, it's lovely to see you. <laughs> um, it's been like two or three days. Yeah, I know. Um, so, we had a couple Supreme Court cases last week, we notable, on the you know, in a sense, related subjects of gerrymandering and the census. Uh, but the outcomes yeah, one came of those things were like the legal process was totally different, but in terms of their concrete impact on American democracy. They were extremely closely related, but it, right, as exactly. you said, but going the, in different directions. And the legal issues are very distinct. So right. so what was like going on in the census case? Like, let's do the real Vox and go sure, back sure, sure, sure. to like the dawn of time. <laughs> they, they wanted to, Trump wanted to add a question to the census. So it actually, it makes a little bit of sense to start with early 2018. The Census Bureau is part of the Commerce Department. So Indeed. the Secretary of Commerce is the one who's ultimately tasked with making decisions about the administration of the census. And in early 2018, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross announced that they were going to add fairly late in the game, mind you, because like the census is supposed to happen in spring of 2020. And there is a pretty standardized process for testing, for getting Congress to approve questions. So they were going to act pretty late in order to add a question. Is the respondent or, you know, whichever member of the household they're talking about in the census a U.S. citizen? So now this sounds insanely banal. Right. How did it manage to become a huge political dispute at a Supreme Court case? So the question that that asked was, well, if you're doing this so late in the game, like it's not like you're just like unveiling the questions for the 2020 census. Sure. You're making this deliberate effort. 
why is it so important that this happen like right now for 2020 rather than just kind of waiting until the next cycle, especially because what used to be the kind of long form census, what's kind of been turned into a separate survey called the American Community Survey, which does go into more detail, like that's already asked about citizenship. So it's not like there is no way to get administrative Census Bureau data about U.S. citizenship. The question is, why is it so gosh darn important that you want to include it on the you know, official census? And, and here's the answer, I'm, right. the answer that the Commerce Department gave in 2018 was, well, the Justice Department has asked us to add this question because they need it to better enforce the Voting Rights Act so that they can be sure that states aren't redistricting Latino populations to be overly concentrated or diluted because they are concerned that with the existing data, they don't have a good enough sense of the gap between the actual population and the congressional representation of a place. But as you pointed out, in your explainer, um, a lot of kind of left-leaning voting rights groups did not entirely buy that the Trump administration was laser-focused on the underpinnings of the Voting Rights Act. Right. Like, there are technically legal arguments you could use that, like, yes, you can't necessarily bring non-census data. You know, it's harder to bring non-census data to bear when states are making their decision based on the census itself. But, like, The Jeff Sessions Department of Justice under the Donald Trump administration had not shown a concerted interest in the voting rights of Latinos. Okay, but here's where we have to go even deeper. Right, right, exactly. Because I think they get sued over this, especially by like a group of states, including like New York and California, who are concerned that if if people are asked about citizenship and they aren't citizens or they have non-citizens in their household, instead of saying, I'm not a citizen or for that matter, like, freaking out and saying that they are citizens, they will just not turn in their census forms. And because the census requires actual enumeration, you can't use statistical modeling to like fill in the gaps of, oh, okay, we think that this group was less likely to respond, so we're going to up their numbers accordingly. Right. So I think this is like really important, right? So like back in the day, if you look at like the census of 1880, right, it used to be that the census was like the government's one survey, right? So- the gov- the federal government's like best shot at collecting data on like what was happening in the United States of America was the decennial federal census, right? Then over time, because of you know better record keeping and then telephones and you know eventually computers, right. there's like the result the the rise of demographics as a social science. Right. There just started to be both a more information rich environment and also a more methodologically sophisticated understanding of how to do surveys. But there was a lot of political fighting in the 80s and especially in the 1990s over the point that for the constitutional functions of the census, because the census always had this sort of dual thing. Like you can look up like how many people had running water in 1940. Right. But also you use the census to apportion the House of Representatives. And generally the distinction between like the stuff that goes on the American Community Survey and the stuff that goes on the big census is like, okay, you can put the running water kind of stuff on the American Community Survey that fewer people, you know, get. Right. You want to make the actual census that everyone has to fill out as short and as limited as possible so that you encourage as many people as possible to fill it out. But this is because, right, so the people came to believe, and and I think correctly, that the census process, you know, produced an undercount of the American population and that it was a disproportionate undercount and that you tended to miss – 
low-income minorities, people in unstable housing situations, things like that. So statistics nerds wanted to bring statistics to bear to sort of reflate the census. But of course, that has partisan political implications. So Republicans have insisted they cite uh, constitutional language calling for an actual enumeration to say that rather than basing districts on the government's best, most accurate assessment of how many people live places based on their surveys. It has to be based on literally who has returned the surveys. So then that means that everything to do with the census is like very freighted with response rate issues. And that generally speaking, if you want accurate statistical information about the United States of America, you like don't rely on the census. You want to use a more methodologically sophisticated survey. But if you want to screw around with congressional apportionment, you do worry a lot about the census. Right. So the fundamental, like the deep, deep underlying issue here is that like in general, you don't add questions to the census in order to get the answer to the question. You add questions or subtract them from the census to manipulate the response rate. And that's especially true of a question being asked by the Trump administration about U.S. citizenship, which even though it isn't explicitly about immigration status, is coming in an environment where like even before the citizenship question was added, uh, Census Bureau testers and statisticians were coming back saying like, I asked about whether everyone in the uh, household was born in the U.S. and got kicked out. Like they refused to finish the rest of the survey Uh, because people are just so worried, like, you know, Part of this was a fear that information would somehow be shared with ICE. Some of it was just kind of generally like, why should I give you any information about this? So states like New York, which already stands to lose a census, uh, to lose a congressional seat if like current population projections are accurate, is going, wait, if our Latino population and like immigrant populations are less likely to respond to a census taker than white people in states that are predominantly white are, we're going to be totally screwed. And so they, you know, the coalition of states is what ended up bringing this lawsuit against the Trump administration. And here's where this differs from other lawsuits brought against the Trump administration. Generally, when you're trying to stop a Trump administration policy, your first goal is to get it stopped as quickly as possible. So you want to go for a preliminary ruling, and that doesn't allow you to do a whole lot of evidence gathering. You don't get to subpoena a lot of people. It's really just what's in the briefs and what's in the law. In this case, because like Obviously, the census was like impending, but not like immediate. They were able to, throughout 2018, conduct a trial and like actually get a lot of evidence. And over subsequent rounds of asking the Commerce Department to show more of its case on the Voting Rights Act, the Commerce Department kind of backtracked. And then aggressive questioning from the people filing the lawsuit revealed more of the story that ultimately showed A, Wilbur Ross came into office and like his first week was like, where are we on adding a citizenship question to the census? B, they tried to ask a bunch of other agencies to ask for census data, uh, to ask to add citizenship to the census for like other reasons and only kind of settled on the Voting Rights Act as like a final thing. And C, they had actually asked DOJ about voting rights stuff initially and DOJ was like, eh, and only later were they ultimately kind of you know, coerced into doing this. So the the paper trail of 
agency emails, of memos, showed pretty definitively that whatever the real reason for adding the citizenship question to the census was, Wilbur Ross sure didn't come into office and go, wow, the Department of Justice really wants us to enforce the voting rights. Which, which is the point that John Roberts makes in right. uh, in his majority opinion for the Supreme Court, which pretty much is an argument of like, I was okay with letting you do this, but don't come at me with this bullshit. Because yeah. he, he pretty much says, administrative law is meant to ensure that agencies offer genuine justifications for important decisions, reasons that can be cr- scrutinized by courts and the interested public. Accepting contrived reasons would defeat the purpose of the enterprise. If judicial review is to be more than an empty ritual, it must demand something better than the explanation offered for the action taken in this case. And it's clear that the court w- was okay with this question being asked. They just needed a reason that was you know, a real reason when the evidence, as Dara explained, shows that it, you know, this was something Wilbur Ross wanted to do and there was no conversation about VRA enforcement being involved at all. So I want to know two two things about this and the ongoing breakdown of the American political system. Um, Because one thing is this citizenship question, I think pretty clearly, is going to produce a substantial undercount of the population in the state of Texas. Right. Right. And that's going to be quite bad for the state of Texas, because a lot of federal uh, funding formulas are based on the census count. Right. So like less money will flow to the Texas government and to Texas cities and to Texas counties than the state of Texas is entitled to because the Trump administration is trying to screw them out of an accurate population count. And yet Texas is a is a Trump state. Right. He's he's screwing over one of his biggest electoral college states in this. Um, And when you look at the attorneys general who sued to block this, you will not find Texas's attorney general on the list. Now, that's fine. That's up to him. But it's a sign of the times. Right. This measure, an undercount of non-citizens will advantage the Republican Party writ large in a kind of redistricting schema. And consequently, Republican Party elected officials, including the elected officials of Texas and Florida, whose states are going to be harmed by this, are all on board with it. Secondarily, at the Supreme Court, Trump lost, right? But he lost on narrow terms. And even on those narrow terms, only one out of the five Republican-appointed justices would go for it, even though as a matter of constitutional law, there's nothing particularly progressive or conservative about this question of like whether you want agencies to just have totally made up reasons for things. Now, you can see at some future point, you may get a ruling that's like closer to the heart of the matter here. And there, you know, you might expect conservatives to just line up for the sort of conservative view of this. But just as a process question, there's very little ideological content here. Like you could absolutely imagine a Democratic administration like ginning up some fake reason why it wants to regulate an industry. And like conservative judges are going to want to say like, no, you have to have like some scientific process, some fact finding, blah, 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 blah. And it's a stunning, the whole thing to me, like example of where we are is that the the whole order is essentially hinging on John Roberts's sense of like his place in history or something rather than the like the normal incentives right like one of the classic things that's supposed to block 
out-of-control procedural meddling is exactly this thing that, like, undercounting Latinos may be good for Republicans, but it's bad for some big Republican states who are, like, meant to advance their interests and produce a political dialogue that is about something other than baseline partisanship. But instead, everything is baseline partisanship. So those are, I think, actually, like, two fairly different questions. The second one is there is an ongoing debate in administrative jurisprudence. Like, the Administrative Procedures Act requires that an agency's decision not be, quote-unquote, arbitrary and capricious. And, like, there are, you know, standards for what that is supposed to mean in terms of the decision-making process. There is a debate about whether judicial review of that, A, is supposed to be substantive at all, like whether it is kosher for a judge to look at the record and go, gee, it looks to me like you made the wrong decision here. The weight of the evidence is on the other side. Or whether it should just be procedural and like checking, oh, okay, did you do, did you like do the things that indicate a robust decision-making process? And then there's this meta debate over how much review of the evidence should judges even have to begin with. The second actually looked like it was going to create a very, very big delta in this case because, for one thing, during the oral argument, the conservatives on the court, including Roberts, were focusing on the Voting Rights Act. Like, we're saying, well, the voting rights, like, this seems, that seems like a legitimate reason to do something without acknowledging that the Voting Rights Act had been shown pretty definitively in the administrative record to be a pretext, raising the question of, oh, okay, are they going to rule that this shouldn't have been considered in the lower court's opinion, that like the lower court should have just looked at the memo that said Voting Rights Act and said, oh, okay, this sounds good to us. Especially then because after oral argument was when we had the kind of 11th hour bombshell uh, revelation of these files on the hard drive of this deceased Republican operative that the plaintiffs against the administration argued showed that the real impetus for this adding the citizenship question was, in fact, to depress Latino response rates in the census. Whether or not it actually showed that is kind of a like separate factual question that's being considered by a judge in one of the ongoing suits related to the census. But like it rose, it, it raised the question of, wow, the Supreme Court literally doesn't have a process for incorporating this 11th hour stuff into the opinion it has to issue in the next two weeks. Is the conservative majority really going to put something out that goes Voting Rights Act when liberals around America are convinced that they know the real reason yeah. and it's not that? Like, that could have been a real problem. Um, so this is not really resolving that. The question about Texas and Florida, though, gets to, I think, kind of the, like, dark sky scenario for progressives around the citizenship question. And that is this. The U.S. Congress is responsible for using the census to determine how many seats each state gets. Then state legislatures are responsible for determining how those districts are drawn. And while somebody tried to sue Texas the other year and say that they had to draw districts based on citizenship rather than based on number of people in the the district, and the Supreme Court said, no, Texas is allowed to use all people in the district if they want, no one has really tested what happens if a state does use citizenship, like, can that be challenged? And that would be a tricky thing to do if you weren't using census data for it. But if you had the census data that was used to apportion your state's number of congressional seats in front of you, and you said, we are going to draw our districts so that 
districts with a lot of people, many of whom aren't citizens, are counted as if they don't have a lot of people. Right. That would result in the best of both, well, not necessarily the best of both worlds for Texas and Florida, but like a world in which they were getting counted for more people in terms of the number of seats than they actually had to accommodate for voting rights purposes. Right. So like that is, that's how they could, that's how Texas Republicans in particular might find it to be a more worthwhile trade-off. Like, yeah, okay, you might lose, you might not gain a seat that you would otherwise get, but the seats that you have, you don't have to worry about the areas of the, you know, about accounting for the areas of the state where a lot of people aren't citizens. That, I think, kind of does address the kind of, you know, zero-sum partisan question here. It does, however, mean that John Roberts was doing a thing that absolutely hurt parts of his party when he, you know, when he made this ruling. And like, yes, it is a fairly technical ruling, but the other part of this is that it's just, it's not clear that they have time, right? Like, the essence of Roberts's ruling is, you have to come back and try again. And f- you have to, you know, come back with the existing, like the existing things that you already did and show the original reason and that it was legitimate, which means like they have to do a better job than the job they've spent the last year and a half doing. There was like one census official who told Congress that they could wait to finalize the forms as late as October if they had if they made an extraordinary effort. But the Trump administration has been going through this whole thing, telling the Supreme Court, you have to decide this ASAP because we have to finalize these forms by June 30th. Right. This is like July 2nd. They have not finalized the forms yet. It's not clear whether they're even going to continue to contest this case. So like that is as narrow a ruling as it was. This may very well have been the death knell for the census, at least 2020. Let's take a break and talk about gerrymandering. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Okay, the other big case that came down was about partisan gerrymandering. And the way this went is, I think, as as Weeds listeners know, um, 
Many states are quite uh, severely gerrymandered. Uh, This particular case came out of Wisconsin, in which Democrats in 2018 uh, and in 2012 had won a majority of the vote and not only didn't have a majority of seats in the state legislature, they're not even close. Um, You know, Wisconsin delivers big Republican majorities with a minority of the vote. Uh, Michigan is the same way. North Carolina is the same way. Lots of other states have. And I I think it's worth noting that, you know, in North Carolina specifically, uh, one of the maps that was at discussion Mm -hmm. for this case, uh, Representative David Lewis said, I think electing Republicans is better than electing Democrats. So I drew this map in a way to help foster what I think is better for the country, which is an admirably straightforward explanation. Right. So there were sort of Two strands of legal argument that the plaintiffs were relying on. One is that back in the 60s in Baker v. Carr, the Supreme Court for the first time said that they could get involved in redistricting cases. And in this case, to say that the districts had to have roughly equal populations because it used to be state legislatures would just do whatever. Um, Then there's a whole series of cases about racial gerrymandering in which, you know, this is coming out of the civil rights era in which. Party politics was not a strong force in the American South in the 1970s um, and to an extent even in the 1980s. I mean, it's not just that it wasn't polarized the way it is now. It was like genuinely all over the map. And, you know, the jurisprudence is you can't sort of like slice up Alabama's African-American population such that there are no black representatives from the state. Over time, like – Racial gerrymandering and partisan gerrymandering look very, very similar, right, in terms of their their impact, their intention behind them. And so you would start to get uh, cases where people would say, no, 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 this has nothing to do with racism. Like we were just trying to get a majority in the state legislature for ourselves. Um, so then this litigation is basically come and say like, no, like in the same spirit of Baker v. Carr and in the spirit of the racial gerrymandering cases, there has to be some limit on on the freedoms. And as long as Anthony Kennedy was on the court, he had in a number of cases indicated some sympathy for this argument, but had suggested that his concern was that the courts didn't have a clear remedy, that there wasn't a really well-defined theory of the case. And so, you know, anti-gerrymandering people, I mean, frankly, affiliated with the Democratic Party since 2010, although it would have been different in the past, has spent a lot of time developing kind of detailed mathematical models and like a big theory of how you could tell what the gerrymandering was, blah, 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 blah. Um, but Justice Kennedy's not on the court anymore. And like the whole thing just basically got tossed. I mean, the the ruling here is that, like, there's no constitutional issue here and that it doesn't matter what kind of, like, fancy math you bring to bear to show that this map is really unfair or or whatever else it is, that, like, you are just allowed to draw whatever maps you want from the... (laughs) I, I know nothing about law, so I always find court cases troubling. Um, from a standpoint of political theory, right, the pro to a judicial intervention in a shitty-seeming situation is always that you can make something that seems shitty better, right? But the con is always supposed to be something about democratic legitimacy, that like maybe you shouldn't have the five avenging angels of the Supreme Court saying everybody can marry who they want because, you know, of accountability and blah, 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 blah. In this 
particular case, right, the democratic legitimacy argument seems very, very weak to me because the essence of the problem is that the Wisconsin districts are drawn by a Wisconsin legislature that was not elected by the majority of the voters. And it's doing so specifically. um, There's another quote from one of the MAPS authors saying that they gave Republicans 10 of 13 seats because he didn't think it was possible to create a map in which they got 11. Right. And again, I mean, it's... That's just the question at issue, right? right. Is like, is like, should the legislatures that lack democratic legitimacy be allowed to perpetuate themselves in office? So I don't. I mean, I mean, I I get it why the court ruled the way it did, but it doesn't it doesn't have the normal logic of a judiciary stepping back because there's no actual remedy. You can't, you know, had the plaintiffs lost the marriage equality case, right? The answer would to the activists would be, well, go win the election. But like the answer to the Wisconsin activists can't be go win the election because they already did, right? And it's not to say you can't. Like the upshot of this is that Democrats are going to need to start running on a platform that is substantially to the right of the median voter in America, which is something conservative, particularly like high-minded conservatives, like the kind of people who uh, uh, serve on the judiciary, like they would like that outcome even more than they would like Republican electoral victories because it's much more entrenching to like try to force the Democrats to adopt conservative positions. But that's life. Yeah, I think I mean I, th- I think it's useful to think about this. Like yes, in practice, the downside of judicial intervention is this is the sacrifice of democratic legitimacy, but like you know, returning to something that I think we end up talking about every single June and July on this podcast, which is the extent to which judges themselves are aware of, you know, are th- are thinking as legal realists and are thinking as strategists versus the extent to which like there is an entire culture and industry invested in infusing people with, you know, high-minded ideology to the point that when they're serving on the federal judiciary, that's all they're cognizant of. Um, So, you know, in in line with that, they're not actively thinking about what is the particular trade-off in democratic legitimacy in this particular potential intervention versus another one. They're not weighing that as a as a cost and balances thing, they treat it as a threshold question, right? Mm-hmm. If it is deemed a political question, that means the court has to be hands off. And like that obviously is not a well-defined term and generally can is more likely to happen when judges really don't want to rule on something or when they're not that mad about the status quo. But it does kind of answer the question of why is the court throwing up its hands when it can't find anything else to point to? It's that if you think about this as pure partisan competition, every individual serving on the court has been very, very well trained that the court isn't supposed to weigh in in matters of pure partisan competition, that right. that is for the electoral arena. And so, the you know, it just like it shuts down any potential avenue of inquiry. Yes. It's just if you think in the limit about where this is taking us, um, it's just not – Right. I mean, as you as you were hinting at in the first segment, like the problem here is that there is no longer an independence of racial gerrymandering and partisan gerrymandering. Like that's one problem. It is if you have a situation in which one party and therefore one set of institutional interests is 
racially homogenous to the point that they can engage in things whose effects are going to be, you know, like they can engage in efforts that will disproportionately disenfranchise African-Americans and think about it as disproportionately disenfranchising Democrats, that makes it impossible to actually enforce the Voting Rights Act, and you know, as it is supposed to be enforced, that like you're not supposed to dilute non-white votes for this for the purposes of preserving white supremacy. I mean, you're not supposed to. Right. Whether or not you do is an entirely separate question. And yeah, I think that that's been a, an interesting challenge as, you know, kind of the racialization of party politics continues apace. This is not a particularly new phenomenon, but it is something that, you know, when you can say, no, 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 we're trying to disenfranchise Democrats, which is an entire, you know, being a Democrat is not a protected category as of right now. And so I think that that's that's fascinating in which the court is attempting to argue outside of a racial context that everyone knows exists and that everyone knows we are within. But the court is like, what if we weren't? Right. Well, which is like totally consistent with Shelby County from several years ago, right? Like it is officially the position of the Roberts Supreme Court that racial discrimination in voting is basically dead. Right. And so it gets all that much easier to turn to existing, like all of the state laws that have been passed since Shelby County, for example, and say, well, we already know that racial discrimination is dead. So this can't be racial discrimination. It has to be something else. I mean, I, but I, to give them some credit, like I do think that that is uh, probably true, right? That if you took Donald Trump and he knew how to identify which of the African-American population are the 9% who are Republicans, and he had some way to make sure that they could all vote, but that none of the African-American Democrats could, he would not take a stand on racist principle and also disenfranchise the black Republican. You know, so like in that sense, like I think the conservative take on this is right. There isn't a racial conflict in American electoral politics that is distinct from partisan conflict. It's just like the question of like, is does that make it okay? I would also say, you know, I, the 2018 midterms happened to generate not a small Democratic uh, popular vote majority, but a large one, right? And so that created the sense, particularly because in the House of Representatives, it wound up being a roughly proportional outcome through both the size of the Democratic win and a little bit of happenstance in California, it to an extent obscured the severity of the kind of situation that we're in. But if you imagine 2020, right? In 2016, Donald Trump uh, lost the popular vote by two. And that meant that Republicans won the median congressional district by 3.1, right? Suppose Democrats win the popular vote in 2020 by one point, or sorry, lose it by one point rather than losing it by two points. If they lose by one point, Trump will be reelected, Republicans will retake the House, and Republicans will expand their Senate majority, right? Down ballot, Republicans who have a majority in the Wisconsin Senate based on losing the popular vote will get a supermajority, right? They may be able to pass all kinds of amendments over Tony Evers' veto, perhaps completely eliminate gubernatorial powers, perhaps pass a rule um, changing how the electoral votes are allocated so that the gerrymandering of Wisconsin reiterates itself at the presidential level. And you can get a situation in which at a certain point, you know, grassroots Democrats give up, right? Because it's difficult to stay engaged in electoral politics when it begins to feel futile, 
right? And if you look at the history of like national party entrenchment in South Africa, it starts as a question of the happenstance of geography produced a disproportionate result. Then it becomes a gerrymandering question. And then it becomes the opposition just quits because like, what are you going to do, right? Like people can't stay geared up forever and ever and particularly can't stay geared up in the particular way that like electoralism kind of requires. And, you know, I think I was talking on on another podcast about the Senate and, you know, conservative person I was on there was like, well, you know, like this just shows that like progressives need to learn something about federalism and do something at the state level, Um, which is fine. But like at the state level, they've created a map where it's not possible in Midwestern states, like in states that Republicans happened to do well in in 2010, it is now like semi-permanently impossible for Democrats to govern in those states either. And like, I don't know, like it's just like, it it, it sucks. I'm not going to argue this with regards to the Midwest, but I think the flip side of this is as long as districting is tied to the decennial census, the fact that the party that is that got, you know, in the last cycle disenfranchised in redistricting is the party whose, you know, whose base includes the demographically growing groups does mean that toward the end of the decade, like now, for example, when congressional maps that were drawn in 2010, 2011 may not account for changes since then, like you do get, it's not just about, oh, Democrats have to like do twice as well to do half as good. There is in some cases an ability to, you know, turn out people who simply weren't there eight years prior and therefore turn a district over. Like, I think it's not a coincidence that we've been that the places where where Republicans have lost seats in the last decade have been like California throughout the decade and to a certain extent in the last cycle, Texas. Like those are places. I mean, California certainly obviously is going to have been districted by Democrats, but with a certain amount of incumbent protection involved, but like has been changing demographically to the point that safe seats aren't safe anymore. By the end of the decade, you even have that in states like Texas, where the districts were drawn by the Republican majority and, you know, in an effort to protect against that kind of partisan competition. The question that raises is, do you retain the norm that districts only get drawn after the census, right? If you have a world where every time Republicans come back into state power, they redraw the electoral, the state electoral map, that erodes that kind of last ability for the tides of demographic change, as long as one party is going to be the party of demographic change right. to offset this to a certain extent. I agree. Take a break. Give us a white paper, Jane. So today's white paper is entitled, No, You're Playing the Race Card, Testing the Effects of Anti-Black, Anti-Latino, and Anti-Immigrant Appeals in the Post-Obama Era. And the paper, it is forthcoming in political psychology, and it comes from a couple of folks from UCLA, Princeton, and University of California, Riverside. And the paper essentially argues that the idea of racial priming and how explicit versus implicit uh, anti-minority appeals are used in politics, this is a paper about the effectiveness of those appeals. And it finds that you know, they use the implicit explicit model and they talk about how it generally fails for anti-black appeals, sometimes fails for anti-immigrant appeals, but consistently holds for anti-Latino appeals. And it essentially argues that, one, how we talk about 
existing racial priming research, basically how people respond to the use of race or kind of racialized language, racialized rhetoric has failed to change to keep up with how demographics have changed. Uh, you know, the political salience as it brings up of Latinos and the growth and dispersion of the Latino population, which has been shown to trigger feelings of racial and cultural threat. Currently, research hasn't caught up to that. So this is a paper based entirely on how people interpret appeals, either an implicit appeal, which is an argument where you are attempting to talk about race without talking about race, or a more explicit appeal, uh, using the example of Donald Trump talking about Mexican immigrants being rapists or murderers, or talking about shithole countries, for example. Right. The classical model of this is like the Willie Horton ad, right? right? That you have a situation in which well-thinking people aren't going to vote for a Republican because an ad says that scary black people will come and murder you if you vote for a Democrat. But if you don't say scary black people, but instead show an image of black hands and talk about a scary black person, then you will successfully, you'll get people who are able to square their kind of resentment or fear of African-Americans with their intellectual belief that the races are equal now. Right. And it's interesting to see because you're starting to see more implicit appeals being used about other minority groups as other minority groups expand in population and increasing political relevance. And that is what the paper is talking about. It also was calling back to a 2001 paper on racial priming theory, which argued that it doesn't really work, but saying that like when we're using it, we need to kind of widen the framework to show that these types of – there are different types of racialized appeals, and those racialized appeals work differently depending on the racial group in question. Right. I mean, not just the racial group in question, but the way that this experiment actually worked. Like they did use campaign ads, which has been kind of the – general model for talking about racial appeals in the political context. And they tested the association of African-Americans with gang violence, the association of Latinos with illegal immigration, and the association of Latinos with gang violence. And the upshot of that was that the kind of blacks equal gangs thing is so played out that people are generally familiar. They understand it as a racial appeal. You don't have to point out to them, hey, that's a racial appeal. That That is to a certain extent true for Latinos associated with immigration. That like, yeah, people who do not have a lot of racial resentment, like who don't score on that independently are likely to see it as a racial appeal and not support it regardless, but that people who have medium or high levels of racial resentment will be less likely to see the implicit appeal as a racial one unless it's pointed out to them. And that for the Association of Latinos with Gangs, which like, I think right now it's very easy to think of Trump talking about MS-13 and go, oh, obviously people associate, you know, that's that's a thing that is known. These experiments were done in 2016 before and then after Trump won the election. So in both cases, before he really started talking about MS-13. And the association of Latinos and gangs wasn't kind of well entrenched enough for people to think about it as a racial appeal. And so in that case, you really did see a divide between what happened when people just kind of saw the ad and what happened when people saw saw the ad and then read a an imaginary USA Today op-ed talking about how racist the ad was. Something I was struck by, um, you know, reading this paper, because the whole theme of the paper, right, is like a change in the research context from the sort of 70s, 80s paradigm to contemporary politics. And 
academics are like so left wing as a group that I feel like they often like lose perspective on like who's doing what in the world. Because the other big thing that has changed that they don't talk about in this paper is that Democrats have become like exponentially more likely to make explicit racial arguments in the political arena, right? Like in the 1980s, you would never hear a Democrat say like, we need to do this like superficially race neutral thing to help black people. Right now, you might say we need to pass this civil rights law to do it. Right. But that would be what it was. Right. So the whole nexus of like the Willie Horton ad. Right. Is that Massachusetts had this furlough program that was like it's like just supposed to be a program. Right. It was some person in Massachusetts government's idea of what would be a good way to run the prison system. Right. And then the accusation was that George H.W. Bush was like racializing this with his ads and the way he talked about it, right? It's become progressives who will talk about, like, maybe it should be legal to sell marijuana. And then, like, they will go racialize that, right? Or will say that the whole subject of criminal justice and drug enforcement is so inherently racialized that we need to talk about the racial element and things like that. And there are, you know, reasons for that. Like, some of that is... The, the influence, frankly, of academic work, right, which has, like, taught a couple generations of college students that these things are racialized. Some of it is the changing demographic balance in the country, which has meant that, you know, people feel that they need to be addressed in a more explicit way than they are. But I, I think that, like, if you want to understand why racial conflict is so much more explicit in current American politics, you have to like consider the the active role of the left in doing that. Um, and you see it. I mean, you watch the Democratic primary unfold and like it's all over there. I mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense when you have a Democratic primary that features more than one black person being involved. Yeah. And also feature, you know, a number of other people who are minorities and can talk about these issues. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of times, like even the whole conversation we're having about busing, in which I keep hearing that busing, like, raised racial tensions when I'm like in response to segregation, which, as I would imagine, probably raised some racial tensions, but somehow those racial tensions were not as important at the time. You know, the like sundown towns would raise racial tensions. Lynchings raised racial tensions. It just depends on whose racial tensions are hmm. particularly more important than other people's racial tensions. I don't know that this component of your Great Awakening thesis applies to this particular study. And that's because they have a paragraph in here talking about, you know, in their methodology section, like, like a lot of social science surveys, this was done with a combination of asking some college students and asking, you know, an online convenience survey. And both of those things tend to produce populations that are, you know, younger, more educated, more democratic than the national right. average. But they then say, in terms of political independence, moderate and conservative ideology, and racial resentment, however, our two study samples are more in line with national figures, which is to say they had a relatively young, well-educated democratic sample that did not, in fact, show the monotonic relationship between democratic lean and low racial resentment that you would predict from something like your theory that this is being driven by the left. Like, maybe that changed after 2016. Mm -hmm. I think there's a possibility that it did. But that's not what this particular study is about. Wait, but I mean, I'm saying in terms of the shift in explicitness, right, that like, I just think that there has been a actual 
drive from the left in America to argue that there should be more sort of like explicit discussion of the racial element of things. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's like, if you look at the old paradigm of nominal racial equality, you can see a world where somebody argues, oh, okay, if people think that the world is equal because they don't really know that it's unequal, their normative commitment to equality is going to outweigh their assessment that the way things are right now is good. And it turns out that it's the other way around. Yes. All right. I I think we've we've hashed out race. We've we've, we've fixed race. Thanks very much. Let's wrap it up. That's great. I like to leave on a solution. Um, Okay. uh, So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the weeds will return on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.